Welcome to the Good Life Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Sycamore, coming to you on a chilly evening in mid-September 2019. Sitting outside of my off-grid cabin in the redwoods of northern coastal California. As I was getting ready to record here this evening, uh, night was falling and the sky turned to this amazing pink-violet-blue color before it turned dark and, and at dusk, while there was still just a tiny bit of daylight left, the bats came out and silently fluttered around above my head. It's maybe my favorite time of day. I don't usually work at this time of night, um, most because I'm not usually awake for very long after dark most days, uh, but for this particular episode, I felt it would be best to capture some night energy ambiance behind my voice because this seems like a topic that is best spoken about in those lonely hours of the night when you feel inclined to reckon with your own mortality. Tonight, I want to talk about dealing with climate change. If we accept what the science tells us, and are willing to take a sobering, honest look at, at the projections. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to feel? If we let go of the idea that the world can or should be saved, or that the climate crisis can be solved, if we move past that hope, what happens after acceptance? How does our perspective shift? How do our motives change? Today's show is partly inspired by an essay I read in the New York Times a few days ago by the author Jonathan Franzen called What If We Stopped Pretending the Climate Apocalypse Can Be Stopped? Uh, and also partly by a recent video from the YouTube channel Philosophy Tube called Climate Grief. So I'll be referring back to both of those throughout this episode. And uh, you don't need to check them out before you listen to this. But if this episode is of interest to you, I would definitely recommend checking out those resources next. This episode is dedicated to a new friend of the show, Danny, listening in from Australia in the driest state and driest country on earth, who was very generous to donate some money to the podcast through PayPal at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. And Danny says that, like me, uh, they also struggle with difficult feelings regarding climate change. So this one's for you, Danny. Uh, thank you for reaching out and offering support. And thanks also to my newest subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. That's uh, my new friend Howard. I really appreciate your contribution as well. This topic of climate grief and climate acceptance, it's one that's near and dear to my heart because it's been a recurring feature on the landscape of my mind for essentially all of my adult life. I've really been mulling over it for, for most of this past year. And I've expressed it in a few different ways, you know, most notably perhaps in my conversation with Trebby Johnson uh, and in my own solo episode earlier this summer where I examined the question of whether climate change might realistically lead to the extinction of humanity and, and who is responsible 
for climate change in the first place. I've always had difficulty expressing what I think are are my pretty nuanced views on climate change and and what to quote unquote do about it and maybe more importantly how to feel about it because at the surface level whenever I attempt to describe how I feel I I think it comes across to a lot of people as pretty doom and gloomy and I'm not really a doom and gloom kind of person honestly I believe, based on my understanding of the science, as someone formally trained in ecology, for whatever that's worth, (laughs) um, and as someone who's been following the science pretty closely since the early 2000s, I believe that global climate change will render some portion, potentially a very large portion, of the planet uninhabitable to humans in the decades and centuries to come. It's already happening. Refugees from Central America, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, many of these people are climate refugees. We need to understand their plight in terms of how climate change is leading to things like civil and political unrest and disease and fascist violence and human rights violations. Many of these problems have their roots in ecological instability. And we can see many of the ways that human cultures respond to such instability in the kinds of disputes and struggles that we observe around us right now. These problems will only intensify in the years to come as our global climate becomes more unstable and unpredictable with each passing month. These problems are all interconnected and the crisis of climate change informs some aspect of all of them as Ollie Thorne from Philosophy Tube describes here. Okay, fish. Fish are dying because of global warming, right? So commercial fishing industries are losing money. And if you run a fish business, one of the easiest ways to save money is to pay the fishermen less and make them work in dangerous conditions. Since all the fishing happens at sea, it's hard for anyone to check But if the crew tells anybody, you're going to have a lawsuit on your hands. So what do you do? You've got to hire undocumented migrants to go on the boats who can't complain and can't unionize or they'll be arrested and deported. Some of the conditions in the commercial fishing industry basically meet the definition of modern slavery. So when it comes to fish, climate change, border controls and labor rights aren't three separate issues. It's one big problem. And I really don't think we need a scientist. I think we need a priest. And, okay, I get it. I mean, yeah, damn, that sounds pretty gloomy when you spell it out like that, huh? So, why do I not consider myself a doom and gloomer? Well, in part, because I've spent many years working through my feelings about this stuff. Uh, since going back to when this topic was still like the fringiest of the fringe radical perspectives, you know, not the kind of thing you might see on the cover of, say, the New York Times. <laughs> not trying to like uh, flex my climate change hipster cred too hard here, but like I've been really worried about climate change since like way before it was cool to do so, man. <laughs> now, let me just light this cigarette and I'll tell you all about how uh, the scene has changed so much since back in my day. It's just like so commercial now, you know? It's like everybody's like sold out, not like back then. 
<laughs> anyway, what was I talking about? Uh, <laughs> I, I've spent a lot of time working through the process of grief and coming to terms with facts like, for instance, scientists knew everything we needed to know about climate change by around 1988, when I was two years old. And corporate interests in the United States ensured that that information was suppressed and that we would take no action at all whatsoever. And we still have not. And now, it's too late. Saying those words really stings, still, and I don't think I'll ever fully heal from, from the pain of knowing that. Like how you never really fully heal from the pain of losing a close family member. It just sort of aches in different ways as you integrate this fact into your life over time. It's too late. There's no going back. The powers that be could have done something, and they knew that something radical needed to happen, and they didn't do it. Because money. And now it's too late. And even if there were solutions, you know, viable ways of saving the planet, I do not believe that our global neoliberal capitalist system is capable of seeing them through. Our current socio-political paradigm is what got us here, and we can't just do more of it and expect to see different outcomes. I have accepted that it's too late. I allow myself to look straight into that deep, dark, collective pain and to grieve over it. We can't know what our future holds, but we can logically expect that everything we observe today will only intensify over time and compound in its intensity as various positive feedback loops are triggered in our global ecological systems. In Franzen's essay, he asks us to consider what happens when we all just accept that the climate apocalypse is coming and that we can't stop it. That there is no such thing as saving the world or solving the climate crisis. But, like, really, though, think it through for yourself personally. You've read the headlines, you've skimmed the scientific papers, and you've reasonably concluded that climate change will lead to untold myriad existential crises in your lifetime. Maybe not for you personally, but it's already happening to millions of people worldwide. And the number will only continue to grow. And there's nothing to be done about it. What's done is done. And there's no going back, there's no undoing it. Uh, there's not even much of a reason to believe that we could mitigate it. Are you there? Can you accept that? Where does your mind go when you attempt to integrate this idea into your inner landscape? Do you believe that we could technologize our way out of this? Maybe we just need to vote for the right people. Or like a, a carbon tax or something. That'll help, right? Here's what Franzen has to say in that piece. Quote, as a non-scientist, I do my own kind of modeling. I run various future scenarios through my brain, 
apply the constraints of human psychology and political reality, take note of the relentless rise in global energy consumption, and count the scenarios in which collective action averts catastrophe. The scenarios, which I draw from the prescriptions of policymakers and activists, share certain necessary conditions. The first condition is that every one of the world's major polluting countries institute draconian conservation measures, shut down much of its energy and transportation infrastructure, and completely retool its economy. A top-down intervention needs to happen not only in every country, but throughout every country. Making New York City a green utopia will not avail if Texans keep pumping oil and driving pickup trucks. The actions taken by these countries must also be the right ones. Vast sums of government money must be spent without wasting it and without lining the wrong pockets. Here it's useful to recall the Kafkaesque joke of the European Union's biofuel mandate, which served to accelerate the deforestation of Indonesia for palm oil plantations and the American subsidy of ethanol fuel, which turned out to benefit no one but corn farmers. And my personal addendum, this is Sam Sycamore speaking now. Uh, American subsidy of ethanol fuel, just a note on Franzen's essay, uh, doesn't really benefit the corn farmers either. It mostly serves to line the pockets of Monsanto, Bayer, Dow Chemical, etc. But I digress. <laughs> Back to Franzen's piece. Quote, Finally, overwhelming numbers of human beings, including millions of government-hating Americans, need to accept higher taxes and severe curtailment of their familiar lifestyles without revolting. They must accept the reality of climate change and have faith in the extreme measures taken to combat it. They can't dismiss news they dislike as fake. They have to set aside nationalism and class and racial resentments. They have to make sacrifices for distant, threatened nations and distant future generations. They have to be permanently terrified by hotter summers and more frequent natural disasters, rather than just getting used to them. Every day, instead of thinking about breakfast, they have to think about death. Call me a pessimist or call me a humanist, but I don't see human nature fundamentally changing anytime soon. I can run 10,000 scenarios through my model, and in not one of them do I see the two-degree target being met. End quote. That last part about the two-degree target, if you're not familiar, um, refers to the assessment from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which says that in order to avert near certain catastrophe in the next century, um, we need to somehow miraculously stay below a two degree Celsius change in global temperature. Now, I've read some reactionary responses to this essay from Franzen, um, coming from all ends of the political spectrum, and and everyone seems to agree that it's bad, <laughs> but nobody is really able to pinpoint why. They just don't like it. <laughs> Conservatives think that Franzen has gotten too drunk on the leftist Kool-Aid, and liberals seem to think that Franzen's climate pessimism, uh, in their words, is counterproductive and breeds apathy, or else it supports the conservative agenda of maintaining the status quo, of doing nothing. 
I think both sides have it wrong. The conservatives, for the obvious reason that you can observe climate change, so it's kind of like saying thunderstorms are a left-wing conspiracy. <laughs> but the left-leaning reactionaries got this one wrong, too, because I don't think what Franzen is describing here is pessimism. What he's describing is acceptance, and that's something different. I'll never forget this thing that Stephen Jenkinson said on the Rewild Yourself podcast years ago. And I've probably mentioned it several times now on the show, but as I recall, the host was asking something to the effect of, given all the problems we face in the modern era and the magnitude and seeming hopelessness of it all, like, what is our generation supposed to do about any of it? And Jenkinson's response, which still rings true to me, now more so than ever, really, his response was that he suspected it was our job as a generation, you know, as, as the next cohort of humans to inherit civilization, that maybe it's not our job to solve any of this, that maybe the solutions truly are beyond our grasp, at least in this era, in this context. Maybe there are no solutions. Maybe our job in this era is just to grieve and to process and to begin healing from our collective past so that maybe the generations who come after us might take our work for granted and discover new solutions or new modalities that we could simply never imagine. Perhaps the most important work we have in front of us, at least in my opinion, as a storyteller and a firm believer that our greatest asset as humans is our creativity, I think that the most important work for us at this moment in time is to learn how to emotionally and spiritually and intellectually deal with all of this baggage that we've inherited from previous generations, uh, which often manifests itself in the kinds of existential crises that we can see looming on the horizon. Maybe within our lifetimes, and certainly in the lives of our children and grandchildren. Once we accept the reality of global climate disruption as a catastrophic force that cannot be stopped, how does that change the way we approach our daily lives? Well, first of all, obviously, as the left-wing reactionaries seem to misunderstand, this acceptance does not mean that we take no action at all. Instead, it makes radical individual and collective action an ethical and existential imperative. It's going to get bad in the coming decades, but it'll get a whole lot worse a whole lot faster if we don't for instance, cut emissions of greenhouse gases, or if we don't stop burning down the fucking Amazon rainforest for industrial agriculture. Accepting the reality of climate change means accepting that the current socio-political agricultural paradigm that we currently operate under cannot be maintained, that it is unsustainable as a matter of course, that it could do nothing other than fail inevitably because its motives and incentives run counter to the needs of the living systems that it relies upon. Thus, we need to take radical action at the individual and community levels 
to not only reduce our contributions to the problem, but to actively begin to prepare to weather the storm on the horizon. One of the reactionary pieces I read to that Franzen essay tried to make the argument that, well, we haven't done nothing when it comes to climate change because, well, uh, look how much we're talking about it now. We didn't used to even talk about it 30 years ago when we knew everything we needed to know. If our culture is really that slow to move, that it takes three decades or more to even convince it to look at a problem, and then I would argue we need to be preparing now as a culture for what our grandchildren and great-grandchildren might be experiencing in the future. So that by the time their day in the sun arrives, maybe people will at least be talking about the important stuff. <laughs> but what I really want to stress through this monologue of mine is something that I've harped on many times here on the show. And it's something that Franzen talks about too, and, and all of his critics from both sides seem to ignore. And that is that pursuing a simpler and less harmful way of life isn't just the most logical response to the climate crisis, but it also improves your life in significant ways now, here, today, whether or not there is any hope of, of saving the world and whether or not catastrophe ever arrives. Here's another quote from Franzen's piece. Quote, all-out war on climate change made sense only as long as it was winnable. Once you accept that we've lost it, other kinds of action take on greater meaning. Preparing for fires and floods and refugees is a directly pertinent example. But the impending catastrophe heightens the urgency of almost any world-improving action. In times of increasing chaos, people seek protection in tribalism and armed force, rather than in the rule of law. And our best defense against this kind of dystopia is to maintain functioning democracies, functioning legal systems, functioning communities. In this respect, any movement towards a more just and civil society can now be considered a meaningful climate action. Securing fair elections is a climate action. Combating extreme wealth inequality is a climate action. Shutting down the hate machines on social media is a climate action. Instituting humane immigration policy, advocating for racial and gender equality, promoting respect for laws and their enforcement, supporting a free and independent press, ridding the country of assault weapons, these are all meaningful climate actions. To survive rising temperatures, every system, whether of the natural world or of the human world, will need to be as strong and healthy as we can make it. End quote. Throughout my work with this podcast over the years, I've often tried to describe from different angles how brittle the systems are that we depend on for the basic necessities of life. Some see this as a pessimistic take, but I see it as a call for creativity. What Franzen is asking us to do is not to give up on the world, but to step up and take meaningful action to specifically cultivate the social systems and the living systems that we rely upon, rather than continuing to be spoon-fed by systems of exploitation and destruction. Mirroring the sentiments of Voltaire's Candide, 
Franzen is asking us to take seriously the idea that this is not, after all, the best of all possible worlds. I think I've spoken about it before, but um, in, in the novel Candide, Voltaire was satirically tearing apart the philosophical ideas of the philosopher Leibniz, who argued that because God is benevolent, therefore everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. To counter this idea, Voltaire tosses Candide and his hapless associates into a chaotic series of atrocious and horrific, but historically reasonable events, you know, things that are not without precedent. And throughout it all, Voltaire continually demands that we ask, is this something that would happen in the best of all possible worlds? Is this something that a benevolent God would allow? Because... <laughs> From over here, it looks like it's just awful and presents no one with any redeeming value or benefit. At the end of the novel, Candide and his crew have somehow miraculously survived the worst of it, and they decide that they should pursue the simple life by going to work on a farm. And Candide's associate, Pangloss, who's basically a stand-in for the philosopher Leibniz throughout the book, uh, he attempts to sort of wrap up the narrative, you know, put a, a nice little bow on top uh, by saying something to the effect of like, well, it seems like everything turned out for the best after all in the best of all possible worlds. And uh, at the end of the book, Candide finally rejects this idea and says, no, dude, il faut cultiver notre jardin. We must cultivate our garden. And look, this is about so much more than gardening, my friends. To cultivate your garden means to take direct and meaningful action to improve the world within whatever your sphere of influence happens to be. It means rebuilding community relationships. It means advocating for our marginalized peers who get hit first and hardest whenever catastrophe strikes. It means advocating for the more than human living beings who occupy the land around you and who have no intrinsic value or rights to life within the confines of capitalism and imperialism. The climate crisis cannot be averted, but humans will persist. So what are you going to do? Give up? <laughs> are you going to wait around for corporations and governments to undergo some kind of radical paradigm shift so that they're no longer primarily motivated by profit and might realistically do something, anything about any of this? Or are you prepared to accept that everything that's bad could very well continue to get worse in your lifetime, no matter who you vote for or what products you purchase? Because if you can allow yourself to accept that, then you can begin the grieving process. Again, what I think is, is among the most important work we have in front of us in this era. I know that sometimes my perspective can skew towards the kinds of things that resonate with uh, the so-called preppers out there. And no disrespect to any of y'all self-identified preppers who might be listening, but uh, I'm not really one of those types. 
That said, I do think it is self-evident that the things we could do to prepare for the slow and unpredictable collapse of our globalized living systems are things that would significantly improve our lives today, here, now. Scott and Helen Nearing, the folks who wrote the book called The Good Life, where the name of this podcast comes from, they had no inkling of catastrophic climate disruption when, when they were writing um, in the Depression era around World War II and beyond. But uh, nonetheless, they felt a strong ethical imperative to do the least harm and tread as lightly as possible on the earth while engaging meaningfully with the society and the land around them. They envisioned the ideal daily life as being split into three roughly equal parts. There's the personal work, uh, you know, your hobbies, your passions, exercise, music, whatever it is for you. Then there's the bread work, which is to say growing and producing and preparing food. And then there's the community work, again, in whatever form makes the most sense for you. For the nearings, the ideal day consisted of about four hours' worth of work in each of these three categories, but of course, your mileage may vary. Taking care of your body, your mind, yourself is maybe the most obvious thing, but it bears mentioning because the state of our culture is so tragically skewed towards capitalist economic interests that we have to use hashtags like self-care Sunday to justify taking even a couple hours out of our week to do something other than pursuing financial capital. I don't want to get off on a rant here about this idea of hashtag self-care, but it's such a bummer to me that, that that's a thing that we need to highlight, you know, the, the rare moments when we are able to take care of ourselves, implying that the rest of the hours of the week we are not caring for ourselves because we're too busy serving someone else's interests. Self-care should be your number one priority every day. If you don't take care of yourself, nobody else is going to and you're going to suffer for it. And when you don't care for yourself by getting adequate nutrition and rest and sleep, uh, because sleep is something different than rest, <laughs> and, and you know, you're not getting enough exercise and recreation and, and social engagement, when, when your personal needs are not met, you can't show up fully the way that you would want to to be useful to your community, you know? So the simplest way to improve your community, at least the best place to start, uh, is to begin by embodying the best version of yourself. And self-care is more than just those material and social needs, you know. I'm also talking about the investment that you need to make in, in uh, again, emotionally processing and integrating the stark reality we face and, and grieving over what's been lost and, and what we will continue to lose. Allow yourself to feel however you feel about it, fully. Of course, it, it can't stop there at the individual level, you know. Uh, knowing how to literally cultivate a garden is perhaps one of the most important skills you could have 
now and forever. <laughs> um, whether things get bad or things are great forever, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, knowing how to forage for edible wild plants, found in your region is perhaps even more useful and fulfilling. Handling food needs within your community is not only the least impactful way of acquiring your food, but it also has the added benefit of strengthening community bonds while further strengthening community resilience. And your community is so much more than your food needs, you know? I mean, you know best how you might fit into your local community with your unique skills, talents, and interests. Uh, whether that's volunteering at a homeless shelter or attending a regular meeting of your local government or organizing a protest in your city or hosting a workshop to teach people how to build a friction fire. You know, these are all valid and worthwhile forms of community engagement that improve your life and your surroundings today and offer the best hope of creating resilience at least at these smaller social scales, should our brittle globalized systems begin to stumble and fall. I disagree with the premise that some have suggested in response to Franson's essay, which is that acceptance of the climate crisis leads to apathy and non-action. I think the opposite is true. If you believe that there is still some hope of saving the world, and and you realize that you're not going to be the one to do it because <laughs> how could you uh, but I don't know like some government or corporation or like Elon Musk somebody will figure it out uh, you know I think that perspective is way more likely to lead to non-action or at least a very passive sort of action when you accept the reality that it's too late you begin to see the importance of radical, decentralized action at the individual and community level. Not because we believe we're going to save the world and solve the climate crisis, but because we have good reasons to believe that what's bad will continue to get worse. And every single one of us may potentially face a situation, or many situations, in the not-so-distant future when our individual or our community resilience is challenged. And even if that day never arrives, we will still be better off for our efforts to rebuild, reconnect, and do whatever we can to protect what's not yet lost, and to grieve over all that has been lost. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Life Revival podcast. For notes and links related to this episode, you can visit thegoodliferevival.com slash podcast slash 68. If you appreciate the work that I do and you would like to enable me to continue to do more of it, I hope that you will consider becoming a subscriber at any level um, at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. You can think of this as a kind of a hat that I would pass around at the end of a lecture like this. Um, if you can imagine the sort of lecture I just gave taking place in a, a physical community space. Wouldn't that be cool, huh? People gathering together to talk about the problems of the day. 
until then, uh, we've got podcasts, at least, for what it's worth. Uh, but yeah, if you, if you want to support my work, you can go to patreon.com slash goodliferevival, or you can make a one-time financial contribution through paypal.me slash goodliferevival. And to all of you who continue to support my work, thank you so much. It, it blows my mind uh, that, that you all believe in me the way that you do. I'm just so grateful. Until next time, this is your realistic climate alarmist friend, Sam Sycamore, reminding you that despite it all, a wondrous world of more than human beings will always be here, ready to accept you back into the fold. Now, are you ready to step out? The Good Life Revival podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can pledge your support for the show at patreon.com slash goodliferevival or offer a one-time financial contribution at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. For more stories, perspectives, and knowledge encountered on the path back to nature, visit thegoodliferevival.com. And thank you for being here.